0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Maggie Freeman, and my guest today is Florian Köhler. Florian is currently a research fellow at the Max Planck Institute for Social Anthropology in Halle, Germany, as part of the research group How Terrorists Learn. Florian holds a PhD in social anthropology and is also trained as a practitioner in peace building and conflict resolution, in which capacity he has previously worked in Niger, Benin, Burkina Faso, and Haiti. He's done extensive field research on pastoralists in the West African Sahel and is the author of the monograph Space, Place, and Identity, Wadabe of Niger in the 21st century, which is the topic that we'll be discussing today. So thank you so much, Florian, for joining me. Thank you. Hi. So first, uh, could you just define the Wodabe, and you can also please correct me if I'm not pronouncing that name correctly. Could you sort of explain for listeners who exactly the Wodabe are and what exactly the study group was that you looked at in your book?
0: Yeah, I don't think we have to go into linguistics here, so I don't <laughs> want to correct you, and Wodabe is just fine. The Wodabe are a small group of Fulbe, actually. The Fulbe being... a very large people in dispersed over great part of west africa but also up to east africa you find them until um, from from senegal to um, to sudan and even ethiopia in smaller groups it, within that a huge ensemble of, of different uh, groups of the full the linguistic group uh, the wadaba numerically very small and not very important but they are very well represented in the ethnographic literature because there are if you like a, a paradigmatic case of very highly mobile and specialized cattle-rearing nomadic pastoralists so there's been quite some interest in the wadaba from the part of anthropologists the classic works are from the 1950s and 60s marguerite dupier and derek stenning but um afterwards they've always drawn some attention um, of uh, anthropologists, uh, com- yeah, including me. My r- unit of research was um, a small faction, a regional faction of one Wadaba lineage, uh, the, the lineage of the N, in, um, in um, whom I studied in Eastern Niger, in the region of Zinder more precisely. Uh, of course, this is a somewhat arbitrary definition of the, the research group. But uh, that was really just for the purposes of research. It's not a distinct un- unit, if you like, but I, I took that regional uh, framework also to delineate the group that I studied.
1: And how did you come to that study group, or what about that region was interesting to you in your research?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, well, in fact, uh, I happened to, to work in Niger for uh, several years before I actually did this research. I'm... Um, Uh, I was an anthropologist by training when I first came to Niger in um, 2004, long ago. I was a young anthropologist, but I didn't come for anthropological research, but I worked in a project um, with the German Development Agency. Um, That was a a project in the context of um, conflict prevention and around the use of natural resources. Between different um, economic, socio-economic groups of users, so so that was the framework um, in which I, the first setting in which I came to live in Niger. Yeah, so so that was the context. Um, I I came for uh, for this work in a in a development project first. Gladly, it was not a, a classical development project, which I'm rather skeptical of sometimes. Um, the problem is that sometimes these projects come come with a lot of money resources, and that can, in in the worst case, create more conflicts than they are set out to to resolve. So our project was very small, and we didn't have a budget at all. We didn't bring money at all. We just put people together to talk um, about the, their conflicts and about possible resolutions, and so. Um, that was interesting for me as an anthropologist as well, because um, it, it brought me into very close contact with um, representatives of um, the ensemble of ethnic groups of the region, if you like. There are the Wadabe, but they're also just a very small group in that region. The main actors in, in that, or the main ethnic groups in that region are Kanuri. These are the, the sedentary farming population that is the majority. But then you have different groups of Fulbe and pastoralists. You have Turek um, pastoralists. in more to the east, you have Tubu pastoralists. So also quite a, an interesting um, mixture of different pastoralist groups, mobile pastoralist groups. Sometimes, yeah, more or less um, sedentary pastoralists, mobile pastoralists, the whole of it. Yeah, so, so it was quite interesting for me as an anthropologist to live in that setting. And I also got... Um, Closely acquainted perchance from the beginning with a family of Wadabe who who lived in the urban context, who came to town as migrant workers. Um, so that was a natural stumbling into that um, research context that I later chose for my doctoral research, because after all these years of uh, living and um, working in pro- projects, I returned uh, to the academic setting and I um, developed a PhD thesis from, from this idea, doing closer research on that very context of these Wadaba that I got acquainted with very closely. And um, whose story I found fascinating, they, they came from a mobile pastoralist nomadic uh, background and they moved to town. But they maintained also very close contacts to the pastoral sphere to their relatives in the pastoral context that was that was the setting and then i gradually developed a research project out of that and then i had a chance to return to academia and yeah put that into work but before i then really set out for um for um, anthropological research proper that was in 2011 also now we're in twenty two also a long time ago. So um you know, the process from from the research to a finalized book is is sometimes a long process okay. and and so um that's also part of the story. Some of the findings uh, are already outdated, you may say, because the region has been dramatically changed since um, the time that I've done that research. but maybe we can go into that a bit later,
1: yeah. I mean, that's always the nature of academic research and publishing, isn't it, that we work on very long time frames? Um, But yeah, I think that would be interesting to discuss a little bit later on. So first, maybe you could explain a bit um, some of the main questions that you are investigating in your research or that you are interested um, in investigating. And you have these kind of three main themes, which I think are addressed in the title of your book, Space, Place, and Identity. So you look at um spatialization placemaking and identity formation among this group of woldabe so could you kind of break each of those down maybe starting with spatialization what is what were the what's the argument that you're making around how spatialization and uh, relationships to space um are conceived of and practiced among the woldabe or among this group in particular
0: let me maybe start with with how I came to to develop these questions mm-hmm. in the first place because um, you might know that also. sometimes um the the exact research questions aren't there at the outset the outset of your research, but they develop gradually over time. Um, and I think in my case in my case, it was a bit like that. So um in the beginning, I started really from, from what I was also concerned with in my work, um, in my project work in, in Niger. That is questions of access to resources and related conflicts between different user groups. And of course, I wanted to look at that from the perspective of the Wodabe. And and then, of course, what you... And that was one thing. And the other thing is that I wanted more or less to... to um, on the one hand... Um, Look at the history of, of this group, how they came to live there in the first place, because they also have a, a history of mobility and migrations, and they have not always lived in that region. And so I was interested in also also in how they came there and how their mobility is also um, related to historical processes of mobility and migration and the the, the current um, Uh, modern processes of migration when they move to towns. Because all these aspects um, are related to mobility, and mobility um, naturally relates to space, of course, and um, movement through space, and uh, also to the attachment to ever-new places. So the relation of space and place uh, comes naturally from that, looking at mobility and migration. And of course, um, um, through these processes of um, migration and uh, mobility and place making, you named it, you have ever new constellations of neighborhood and relations to social groups um, that live in the regions where they migrate, uh, where uh, to which um, to whom they are confronted. So they have to negotiate ever new relations to new neighbors, and, and that's the social aspect of. of all these spatial processes and that's the identity part because identity is always constructed in confrontation with other identities um, between groups that's how these three parts space place and identity come together i was confronted with first with uh, the urban wadabe who worked as migrant uh, migrant workers in towns over time it just developed into friendship and they also um, got me in contact with their uh, pastoral families and um that's why I had a look into that pastoral life that is still nomadic. I understood that, that, that these are not different worlds, but they are very closely, tightly um, connected together, that there is a, um, a constant flow of people, of resources, um, of everything between the pastoral sphere and the urban sphere, that there is a whole economic system And that you cannot um, think of the Wodaba today as um, pure pastoralists anymore. And you cannot say that those who move to towns are simply dropouts of Mm -hmm. of the Wadava society, but that these spheres are closely linked. And I wanted to understand better how these different spheres form uh, an integral whole.
1: And so, how how are they linked? You know, can you give some examples of how you see or how you saw kind of in action this symbiosis between pastoralist and urban dwelling?
0: Yeah, I wouldn't call it a symbiosis. It's it's rather really an integrated um, uh, economic system sometimes because okay. you know, um, you know um, kinship is very important mm. in society. So sometimes these are closely related individuals who share tasks, if you like. Typically, these are brothers. There's a strong um, coherence among brothers who uh, traditionally also have co-residents. They, they stay together. But here they, uh, they, they share tasks. And so far as they say, well, it's difficult for all of us to, to rely solely on pastoralism. So... We have to diversify and one will probably go to town as a, a migrant worker and um, entrust his own animals to his brothers and they will keep up the, the pastoral system. But also in the interest of the one who goes to town. So sometimes you, you really have this um, close cooperation among brothers, typically. But of course, that's not all. It took, the, the, the history of this urban migration thing is, is longer. That started in the 1970s and 1980s with uh, the great Sahel Trouts uh, that, uh, that really uh, killed many animals. Many, many pastoralists um, lost important parts of their herds and it was not possible for them anymore to, to rely on pastoralism. They, had, they were forced to move to town and some returned to pastoralism after that, some never did. In, in, in my research region, actually, it was not the 70s, but the first uh, time they, they really had to move to town was in the 80s roads. But since then, the, the urban migration uh, was established. There is the complementarity. And, and on the other hand, of course, uh, those who are staying in town also for a longer period, because this has been going on for decades now, and these people have their, um, they're quite. Well set up in towns, sometimes they have um, very close relations to important people, and that's an interesting thing. Also, particularly with my um, research group, which maybe we have to talk about, but that's really a, a special case. Also, this is not not something that can be generalized. But, but, um, for other format of towns, many from my research group in Zinder have over time developed very close contacts to. Western expatriates and people who work in development projects. And that's become an important um, economic strategy also, or political strategy also, because um, with their close contacts, they can open doors for, um, you know, interventions of projects um, or or just for um, support by expatriates who are also um, interested in the Wahabbe and who come to know them and to invest, give them animals, help them you know um so so there was quite some networking um undertaken by many from that group, especially which has become also an important uh, economic factor which of course is um, facilitated by the urban encroachment since they they have a solid standing in in towns and through these contacts with um, expatriates, they are proportionally influential, I would say. But this... this is nothing that you can generalize. In general, I would say that the Wadaba really a marginalized minority in Niger and mm. uh, shouldn't be idealized or give a wrong picture here. That, right. That's a really special case. Right. But still, I mean, uh, it's an economic strategy. Um, but also a social strategy, an economic um, strategy based on really social relations. And that's very important because relations um, have always been among pastoralists, social relations over, um, over space, always been very important as, um, for example, as a strategy of um, insurance for bad mm. for times, if you like, you know, so this has been really institutionalized among the four with the, uh, the concept of the and I the the exchange of animals um either um, small ruminants or or cattle um that are exchanged and um so i give an animal to someone and with that there is a strong bond between us because the the other one can, um has economic profit of that animal but i know that if i'm in a bad uh, yeah in a bad situation i can also go to him and he will help me so, this um, establishment of social contexts that have economic importance um, has a very strong tradition. And certainly not only among the folk, but among the folk with the Hapanai, you yeah, have mm. this institutionalized way.
1: So, could you say a bit more about the role of the Woldabe sort of within the larger Nigerian state and society? Um, You know, you mentioned that they're a kind of marginalized minority. So, how does the state perceive the Woldabe? How does the state kind of interact with the Woldabe? How do other sectors of society, you know, sedentary society, urbanized society, how do they perceive the Woldabe in particular? Maybe, you know, how are urbanized Wodabe in turn perceived by others? Are they still kind of maybe marginalized or discriminated against once they have kind of settled down and started to live in cities? And how do other pastoralists perceive the Wodabe? You mentioned earlier that they're one of kind of many pastoralist groups um, in Niger. So how do they interact with and perceive each other?
0: Since you say correctly that they're one of many um, or of a number of um, pastoralist groups, I start with more general things that concern other pastoralist groups as well. In in general, mobile groups and mobile pastoralist groups are regarded with reluctance by the the state. This is nothing particular of Niger, but you find that in many contexts, um, because the mobility of, of pastoralists or nomads is perceived as a threat by the state that is mostly... Um, that has a sedentary bias and uh, mobility is perceived as a a way of evading the state and um, evading taxation and all that. If you look at the then it's a bit twofold, you know. On the one hand, such tendencies or such um, can be seen historically. Of course, the the life in the pastoral sphere, which is a bit um, at the margins of the state and sometimes very little controlled by the state, has advantages, um, they, they maintain a certain autonomy. Nomads maintain certain autonomy um, vis-a-vis the state. In Many contexts that can be an advantage, but it can of course also be a disadvantage because they are overlooked when it comes to distributing resources. And today, um, avoiding the state is certainly not um, a, a strategy that's favored by the wadago, the mobile pastoralists in Niger in, in general. Because today, it's very difficult in the pastoral sector, and there are many projects um, intervening on behalf of uh, pastoralists, and these projects come with resources. And so uh, pastoralists and the Wodaba have a natural interest also in uh, getting access to these resources, and um, so they engage with the state. So there is um, not a clear tendency of state evasion, but it's a mixed thing you know i call that selective integration they they integrate when there is interest in integrating but they keep out if they see interest in you know because the problem is that the state in order for these mobile communities to participate in projects often um um um, often forces them to adhere to a minimum of sedentarization, that is, the the projects um, ask for uh, a fixed place where they can get into contact with these groups. Uh, For a nomadic group, that means that they have to create a site. Sometimes they're already existent, there are pastoral wells that can serve as such sites, but um, if I look at my research region, and that is also an interesting finding, that there is a tendency of uh, not only um, we've talked more or less only about the um, aspect of urban migration, but there's also a tendency of rural sedentarization um, in centers that um, typically form around wells, pastoral wells, but that that really form into proto villages, if you like. The they call that center that comes also uh, tellingly from the from the development jargon, because um, in the development projects they speak of centre de, rue, centre de regroupement. So for the Wadaba, um, there is a clear link between the, uh, the uh, development projects that asked for a fixed place where they can meet the communities and the creation of these centers. So these sedentarization processes in the rural context are also conditioned by interventions of development projects in, in the end, the state. So it's also a response to um, the offer of the state and the development sector. And um, uh, what's the reaction of the whatever Well, they, they they meet the minimum requirements, I would say. They sometimes create these centers, but then you will not necessarily find people there all the time, you know? Um, sometimes these centers can be deserted. You you find mm. nobody there. To a certain extent, this is also changing. You, you, this has been the beginning, maybe. But um, as pastoralism is generally getting uh, more difficult, the conditions are more, getting more difficult because um, because of the pressure on the spatial resources, on the um, pastoral resources. Um, I mean, Niger has an enormous um, population growth and the the farming zone is just eating into the pastoral zone so much that it's getting more and more difficult and many woulda really um, have difficulties um, living a mobile life, um, mobile pastoralist life. Um, and more and more of them also uh, conditioned by economic factors that just many of them are just impoverished and have lost so, their animals and or weren't able to reconstitute their herds after the bad droughts because um, there was double consistent droughts again and again. Uh, so, um, that makes also more and more people really stay in these centers. Um, that is also part of the story. Um, but we were talking about um integration into the state, how does the state see the Wadabe and vice versa. So that is part of that. you were also asking about other ethnic groups, how do they see the Wadabe? how mm-hmm. do they um interact? Um, how are the relations um well on the one hand, of course, there is complementarity, you know. Uh, There are the pastoralists, there are the farmers, and there is um, mutual interest in the products of the others. So there is complementarity, which um, brings people into interaction, and which is a social glue for society. But at the same time, there is a strict maintenance of um, ethnic boundaries, I would say. And um, this is also reinforced um, by clear um, stereotyped views of other groups, it's not that they are not appreciated but but they are sometimes um they have very clear views and uh, what plays into that are two things I would mention here one is uh, that's an interesting phenomenon in Niger. if you have or let's date with a more let's start with a more um general because you find that in in uh, basically all full the societies that they, uh, they have the concept of them, the Fulbe, and the, the others, the sedentary others, uh, the band, um, are more or less the, the exact opposite, and they have a very positive image of themselves and a very stereotyped negative image of the Habe. Ugly peasants, the you know the the sedentary farmers are despised or looked down upon, although there is constant interaction, of course, in, in Niger, you have a very interesting special case between Kanuri and Fulbe. You have a very um, special form of relationship, institutionalized relationship between these ethnic groups, which is, well, in anthropology, you call that a joking relationship. Whether you know the other individually or not, as a member of this other group, you can um, you can play jokes on him. You can ridicule him you can tease him you can
1: you know this is
0: very strange when you first encounter it but it's uh, it's also a lot of fun it's in a way it brings these groups together because it's a completely institutionalized way of mocking each other but it's also um vice versa you know so it goes in both directions uh it's it's not one who's the the victim of the other but it's really vice versa. Although it brings the, the, the groups together in this institutionalized um, relationship, it also has the tendency of really maintaining boundaries very clearly because they're based on the stereotype opposite view. of the, I mean, indeed, the, the other is just the exact opposite view. For um, the sedentary farmers, the Wodabe are maybe the archetype of the the, the the people from the bush that are, you know, little civilized and um, a bit looked down upon. But uh, for the whatever, it's a bit the same, you know, for them, the bush, La Brousse, um, Latte, that is the the good environment. Mm. The town is rather dirty. And you know, this is nothing to be um, proud of or you know, so, so these stereotypes and um, um, it goes in both directions as well of course these things are changing too as more and more people are living in towns and cities you know so they would many of those who have lived in towns for 10 years or more would still say they would idealize the pastoralist context and say that the town is dirty and ugly and they they are right i mean nigerian cities are dirty and full of um, garbage. And um, also in terms of um, maladies, it's um, mm-hmm. much cleaner in the bush. <laughs> so they're right. But of course, the others are right too, <laughs> <laughs> because it's their home. So right. we defend their home. But we haven't talked about relations between um, pastoralist groups among themselves, um, among different pastoralist groups. That's that's also very interesting, because the Vodadas see themselves as a part of the Fulbe on the one mm-hmm. hand, They have a common language, common cultural traits, but they also set themselves very much apart from other Fulber groups. The interesting thing is that it's not categorically, but it it can change situationally. Um, Depending on the situation, you can either stress difference or you can stress sameness. And and that's the interesting thing here, that they, they have both possibilities. Uh, they can identify either as Fulbe or set themselves apart from the Fulbe and identify as Wodabe.
1: And so, sorry to interrupt, but does that take place sort of in different contexts? You know, like, do, would they identify as Fulbe or Wodabe depending on a situation or a certain kind of identity marker or where, mm-hmm. when does that kind of differentiation occur?
0: Thinking of situations, specific situations. Okay. For example, if there is conflict um, that involves um, nomadic pastoralists and um, sedentary people, then of course the the Wodawa would stand with the Fulbe and say, "We're all Fulbe. We have to stick together." You know. Um, and there is also one very strong institution uh, where the Fulbe populations. Um, really put their weight together and that is called dangol pulaku that is the boycott of local markets and because the the markets uh, live really from uh, the the animals uh, there's really a, a great economic weight that the pastoralists have if they boycott local markets and that is in the name of the Pulaku, which is the cultural way of the Fulbe, which unites all the Fulbe. That's the Pulaku their great cultural identity concept, if you like. It, it, that is a quite telling example of Fulbe identity put forward in order to stick together against an outward enemy or adverse. Yeah, so it's situational, I would say.
1: I wanted to go back to something that you brought up earlier, um, which is the centers, um, which is really interesting to me because this has some parallels to my research in the Middle East, um, where I look at sort of state building projects for nomadic peoples, and then sort of in turn, um, how and in what context do nomadic people sort of create these spaces where they can have these points of interaction um, with the state and with state authority, which it sounds like is sort of analogous um, to the concept of the centers. Uh, So I was wondering if you could just talk a bit more about those and about sort of what they actually look like. Like, I'm curious about what facilities are available, you know, in the sort of tribal centers in the Middle East. These are often quite elaborate places with schools, uh, medical equipment, things like that, you know, medical facilities, technology. Like, I mean, this is not so much the case anymore, but they used to provide like radios and things like that and that nomadic peoples could use to communicate across long distances. So I'm curious about just sort of what is available at these places and then you also mentioned that they're you know not permanently occupied um so i'm wondering when they would be occupied you know is it during seasonal migrations that people would stop and visit them or what are the kind of circumstances that draw people to them
0: mm. yeah uh, as i as, as i mentioned earlier um the typical start of, of these centers is with a pastoral well that is normalizing the, normally the, the crystallizing point um, around which these centers form. Um, and then in, in many cases, uh, for a long time, the the well was really the, the only physical structure that was fixed. and And the rest was still mobile houses moving around in the vicinity of that well and forming a center that was not altogether Sedentary, but moving around this this well, and um, you mentioned schools. That's an also that's also an important factor that's coming in. In um, yeah, in the last one or two decades at least, there is a rule in Niger. If you have uh, enough uh, children in a community, you have a right for um, a school. Um, the 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 state will put a teacher at the disposal of your community um, for an elementary school Um, but the community would have to construct um, a school building so what happens here is that typically um, the next physical structure that emerges is a house for the teacher because that is generally somebody from the village or from a town um, who's not used to living in a, a mobile house and um, will demand um, of a solid structure to live in. But the, the school itself need not necessarily be a very solid and um, during enduring physical structure. Sometimes it's just a shelter. Sometimes it's um, improvised for years before then there is a possibility with the intervention of a project to build a, a classroom. Um, but, but typically after the well, it's the school that, that comes, yeah. Medical centers not so much because mm. usually the pastoral wells are in the vicinity of villages or smaller towns mm. and these would then be the, the points of reference for medical care. Um, and in sometimes there, there are projects that intervene and that um, uh, initiate projects like cereal banks, mm. because people, once they stay around a the center, they also take up farming and then then such cereal banks are sometimes um, built by projects they are constructed and then used for all sorts of things, but not for <laughs> smoking cereals. Um, but so slowly, little by little, um, some physical buildings appear. And in some cases, they disappear again, because even the more solid structures are not that solid. And in, in that climate, the clay house will disappear after a few rainy seasons. And you see ruins of old houses that are not used anymore. That's also part of it. In some cases, individuals um, also construct maybe sometimes older people who who are tired of moving around, but who have some means um, would create a a house to live in. But that is rather rare. Most people really prefer to live in their mobile houses, which are very interesting structures as well. The house belongs to the woman, to the wife. Um, When she marries, she gets a bed. And this bed is spaces of the house in the far east of Niger, the Wadaba houses are really, sometimes they're not even covered in if it's not there in the rainy season, they they would just have the bed sometimes with a mosquito net on top because the closer you get to like chart even in the bush, you have mosquito problems. But um, it's just um, it's just the bed, the bedstead dead. And, and then of course, this is completed by the kitchen, which is just an open fire and a pot. And um, and and there is a calabash shelf, which is furniture, but which is not a solid structure either. So um, the houses are very ephemeral, but um, but people prefer that to our days. In the rainy season, these are covered by, how do you call that? Plastic wrappings. Like a tarp. Yeah, tarp, yeah exactly. Yeah. And um, and that's it Hmm. Uh, and people move around these centers not so much for the needs of their herds the herds are rather driven away to pastures and nearby by young herders who who will then also stay for a couple of days um, away from home Um, that's called bigal that is um, young herders um, moving away from the household um with the animals but it's also for hygienic reasons. People say that they, they move around because if they always stay in the same place, the dung of the animals and the human feces will just pollute the place. So they, they move away for just a kilometer or two after, after a few weeks to, to give um, the possibility of regeneration for the surroundings. But they, they stay in the vicinity of the well and the center most of the time. This is just a small portion of the, of the, the social group staying always around the center and, and others moving away with the animals according to their needs. So in the rainy season, typically there is a, a, a move to the north uh, when there are good pastures in the north, when the rain has started. Um, and they, they return then gradually towards the center. So, so it's a, a movement north-south um, according to the rainy season and the pasture situation which is which can vary a lot from from year to year the, the rains are um very unstable and-
1: mm-hmm so something you mentioned earlier is this phenomenon of the waldabe we'll who have taken up sort of residence in the cities um who have jobs lives um in urban centers but then often will choose to or sort of be forced to return to a pastoralist lifestyle so that people you know over the course of their lives can kind of go back and forth between being a sort of sedentary urban dweller with an urban job and a migrating pastoralist so i guess my question is how is pastoralist knowledge maintained you know i think something that i encounter a lot in academic and sort of development literature on nomadic pastoralism and sort of growing sedentarization among nomadic pastoralists is this concern over the loss of sort of pastoralist knowledge, knowledge of the environment, this kind of indigenous traditional knowledge. Do you find that that is the case among your study group, that people kind of lose touch with or lose this kind of knowledge of how to be a pastoralist?
0: More and more so, of course, yeah. Um, I mean, if you look at it since the 1980s, it's the third generation of urban dwelling, whatever that you you have. And uh, children are growing up in town, and um, their contact to the pastoral milieu will be is is decreasing. So much as for sure, I would say. And also, what you've just described, and which I describe in my book, that people move back and forth between uh, life as a migrant worker and um, a pastoralist. While I'm describing this, and it used to be really uh, an option for many. Uh, sometimes migrant work was also an opportunity, you know to to gain some money and uh, restock your herd and you know buy animals and return to a pastoralist life. This is getting more difficult today because also the what I've described um, in my book and this um, this uh, urban migrant context is something was something you have to say, quite particular to this study group, they they had a good standing because many of them were working as um, watchmen Mm -hmm. in private domiciles or in in projects, in private domiciles of um, uh, expatriates. That is very privileged work. And um, some of them really were able to profit a lot from that. But these conditions have vastly changed. You know that um, over the last decade, um, the Sahel is, has experienced a security crisis, an enormous security crisis, which for many meant that they lost their work because expatriates were just withdrawn from most cities in Niger and concentrated in Niamey, the capital. So this possibility of very privileged work as um, watchmen for for uh, Westerners has has disappeared many still have their their networks and and have some economic resources from from these networks but um the 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 possibilities of making lots of money with migrant work are diminishing in this group Mm. in in other groups they have never been so attractive economically. So this possibility of really switching and you know, making some money as migrant work and then coming back to the pastoral background, this is certainly diminishing and mm-hmm. most of those who stay in cities today don't have the option of just returning to a pastoralist lifestyle. Some mm-hmm. do when they are old and they just join their communities, their sons who, are still, who may still be in the pastoral or, or younger relatives who are still in the pastoral world and um, because if they can't work in town, it's not an option to stay in town either. But but the problem is for young people who have workforce to stay in in the pastoral sector when they don't have animals is not an option either. Mm. And for many, this is the case. So that's really getting more difficult. And with that. Of course, with with um, entire generations of of children um, born in in towns and staying there for lack of alternatives, um, of course, uh, uh, pastoral knowledge is also fading. Mm. Also.
1: Mm. So, on that note, and maybe as a final question, as we're coming up on the end of our time, you know, you mentioned that you conducted this research about ten years ago, and that a lot has changed in um, in the region. Since then, as you just mentioned, you know, the changing security situation, the growth in militant groups, uh, I imagine climate change um, has also had some effects on pastoralist lifestyles and just people's movements in general. So can you talk a little bit about what further changes you might have observed? Just, you know, I understand maybe you haven't conducted kind of field research um, since then per se, but further changes... That have continued to affect the lives and lifestyles of the Wadabe?
0: Well, in fact, I have conducted field research since then, and especially on the topic of this uh, growing threat of armed groups in in the region, especially in eastern Niger, in the Lake Chad Basin region, where Boko Haram's activities have crossed the border since long, uh, especially for those um, pastoralists, among them also Wadabe. And I, I know uh, Wadabe in the, the region of Difa, neighboring region of Zinda, where I did. My phd research but i also lived in differ for a couple of years when i was in projects so i knew the region and i i have good contacts with pastoralists who habitual uh, habitually moved into the uh, area of lake chad seasonally but lake chad has been a refuge for Boko haram like basically in the over the past years what happened in this region is the The bordering states, the states bordering Lake Chad, that's Nigeria, Niger, Chad, Cameroon, they had different policies, but in, in Niger what happened is that they more or less chased everyone from the lake region. They said whoever is encountered after a certain date in Lake Chad, and if I say in Lake Chad, you, you have to imagine that Lake Chad is not a lake, but a labyrinth of islands and swamp lands and with a changing water level that um, makes way for, for dry land and where fields are sown for a part of the year. And um, so it's a very interesting um, landscape, very complex, very difficult to access, which is also the reason why it's such a good refuge for Boko Haram. So... Um, there are many um, pastoral activities. You can imagine in the dry region of the Sahel, this lake is just such an economic potential and so important for pastoralists, for fishermen, for horticulturists, and so on. The Nigerian state just uh, said whoever is encountered in Lake Chad after a certain date um, is considered as part of Boko Haram and will be killed, will be taken for a terrorist, basically. I'm talking about pastoralists, but that concerns other uses as well. So the people had the choice, What, what would they do? Would they just abandon these spaces and then abandon these resources as well that they depended on? Their alternative would be to to stay in the mainland of Niger, where the grazing situation was very, very bad, because there was enormous overgrazing also because all the people had to move away from Lake Ch- uh, and also from northern Nigeria, which was infected by by Boko Haram. So the security situations in many regions had the effect that other regions were um, pastoral regions, I mean, were completely overgrazed. So many people had to take a choice, either they would um, lose a part of their herd, or they would nevertheless went venture into these regions. And what happened then is they had to arrange themselves in one way or the other with Boko Haram, or, or other actors. That's the problem. That's, um, that's a whole range of different groups. Um, some being there are different factions of Boko Haram. First of all, there's is the Islamic State West Africa province, uh, mainly based in Lake Chad area, but there are also other groups uh, operating in their own on their own account, and sometimes claiming to be part of Boko Haram sometimes just being bandits, whatever. Pastoralists and other users of the lake had to make arrangements with these groups. If you don't really, you, you didn't, they didn't really have a choice. To go with the state wouldn't have been such a good alternative to either. That would have meant um, staying in refugee camps or camps for mm-hmm. internally displaced persons. Of course, the problem is that there is much stigmatization for pastoralists because, simply because they occupy similar niches as, as these armed groups. Earlier we were talking about um, uh, the state um, um, and the state's reluctance against uh, pastoralists because they're they're accused of uh, trying to evade the state. The armed groups, outlaws, they evade the state and they retreat into the same areas that are little controlled by the states. But these are also the, the, the areas where pastoralists find their resources. Unfortunately, they occupy the same niche and that's why they're often put together with these armed groups and confused and taken for being in in collaboration with terrorists that is a big issue and unfortunately a very very sad one which completely changed the the realities in my research area
1: I mean, that's another thing that has parallels with my, with my research area, um, for example, in the Sinai, um, where Bedouin communities um, in the Sinai Peninsula are often conflated with militant groups um, on the Israeli-Egyptian border or, you know, Egyptian um, militant groups that sort of retreat to the Sinai as this kind of remote area that's a little bit outside of the control of the state and there they kind of run up against the Bedouin communities who live there um and become kind of conflated with each other in the eyes of the government um but have to kind of live and kind of work alongside each other yeah so Anyways, I think there's a lot more that we could talk about, but I've taken up enough of your time today. So thank you so much for joining me and sharing your research um, with me and with listeners. That was really fascinating to hear more about your work and about the Uldabit. Um So thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Um, thank you for your interest in my work. And it was a pleasure talking to you.